Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. Today, we're going to be looking at a debate between Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy and Matt Dillahunty as they discuss quantum physics, God, and everything else. And I, I'm not just saying I don't know. I'm saying I don't know and you don't either, but you seem to be claiming that you I do. I know I don't know. I don't know that you don't know. You can dismiss it as Matt's just upset about the title. Yes, I am. Okay, I'm completely disinterested. I don't care if you're disinterested. I, I know. That is as close to a concession of classical theism as I think I've ever heard from Matt Dillahunty. So I've gotten to know uh, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy over the past uh, six months or so, I guess, um, when I kind of was preparing for uh, Matt, the debate with Matt Dillahunty that I was going to have, um, I started looking at what's going on in this underground world of internet debates. And I found that one of the most well-known figures there is Michael Jones, whose channel Inspiring Philosophy has over 100,000, maybe it's more like 150,000 subscribers now. So uh, this guy was really having an impact and seemed to do really well in debates. So everybody was kind of excited about this debate between uh, Michael Jones and Matt Dillahunty. Um, and they, they've had uh, at least one, I think, online debate before. But this was going to be in person at the uh, studios of the Atheist Community of Austin. So kind of excited about this. But one of the big difficulties, I think, with a debate like this one is that uh, the subject matter that Michael brings as part of his argument for God's existence is based on quantum physics, which is very difficult for a lot of people to understand. Many people don't have any clue what's going on or how to understand the argument because they don't have the prerequisite knowledge about quantum mechanics. And so one of the things that I thought needed to be done to illustrate the strength of this debate was to uh, explain a little bit about quantum mechanics and quantum physics uh, just in a really basic way so that people could follow exactly what Michael was trying to do. So we're going to get to the debate in just a few minutes, and if you already understand all these things, perhaps you could just skip ahead. But for those that want to understand it better, I think this is going to be really helpful. So the way that we need to understand quantum mechanics, uh, the, the difficulties, the, the problems, the uh, mind-bending things that are happening there is to understand that things at this micro level of quantum mechanics uh, function very differently than they seem to in classical physics at what we might call the macro level of our everyday experience. So the classical understandings of physics uh, seem, seem, at least, not to work the same way um, at the quantum level. And one of the ways uh, of one of the ways of illustrating this is to look at the famous double slit experiment. And there's a lot of confusion about what actually is going on with the double slit experiment. And so what I want to do right now is I want to give you uh, an illustration on uh, from another video. This is from someone named London City Girl. And this kind of illustrates it in a way that I think is, is broken down enough that a layperson who has no exposure to this would be able to understand. And by the way, before we go into the video, if you'd like to go further with this, I think you should read the book that Michael Jones often recommends, but it's an Oxford uh, press, Oxford University Press published book called The Quantum Enigma, and it's a fantastic book. I read the whole thing uh, last week and found it to be, I mean, listen, Oxford Press books, I've yet to read one that hasn't just blown my mind, and so this is a great introduction to this whole realm. But uh, in terms of this aspect of it, the double slit experiment, uh, it'll kind of give you a taste of what's going on. So let's go ahead and watch this video real quick, just a po portion of this video, and then we'll come back and talk about it. There's a famous experiment in quantum physics called the double slit experiment, which exposed something about particles that still surprises us today. Particles display both particle-like and wave-like behavior. In a version of the experiment, on a larger scale, we have a gun that shoots tennis balls one by one at a detector, which will register where the tennis balls land. 
In between the gun and detector, we place a barrier with two slits, which will leave openings for any tennis balls to go through. Over a period of time and after many tennis balls, a pattern emerges on the detector, indicating where the tennis balls have landed. The results show that the balls which have not been blocked have landed directly behind the slits in the barrier. If we replicate this experiment but on the subatomic scale and use electrons instead of tennis balls, we expect similar results. But this was not the case. Scientists found that when the gun shoots electrons one by one toward the detector and past the double slit barrier, the pattern that emerged on the detector looked like this. The electrons landed not just behind the two slits, but in narrow strips across the length of the detector, and a significant number of electrons even landed straight behind the middle of the barrier. The pattern that emerged is an interference pattern and is associated with the behaviour of waves. Imagine we have two waves that interact. The peak of the waves will combine to form a higher peak, and the troughs will combine to create a deeper trough, and when a peak and trough meet, they will cancel each other out. So if we imagine that our electrons are less tennis ball-like and more wave-like, then what happens? This is a wave from above, the black lines represent a peak, and the spaces in between are the troughs. When an electron goes through the double slit, its wave is split in two and these waves then interact. The peaks meet here and reinforce each other, creating higher peaks, and the troughs meet here, also reinforcing each other, creating deeper troughs. And here a peak and a trough meet, cancelling each other out. The interaction between the waves results in the interference pattern at the detector screen. Where the waves are most intense, we find more of the electrons on the detector screen, and where they cancel each other out, there are no electrons on the detector screen. Erwin Schrödinger came up with an equation for the electron's wave function, and using this equation, we can find out the probability of the electron being in a particular location. Think of the wave as a bundle of probabilities, and the size of the wave in any location predicts the likelihood that the electron will be found there if it is looked for. That is why on the detector screen we observe most of the electrons landing in the places where the electron's wave is at its most intense. It seems as if the electron is not in a fixed position but has different probabilities of being in many different places at once. The act of measurement. To observe the electron's wave function going through both slits at the same time, detectors were placed next to the slits to capture this activity. But when this was done, something strange happened. The electrons stopped behaving like waves and went through one or other of the slits and landed on the detector screen to form the two-striped pattern rather than the interference pattern. It seemed as if the act of measuring did something to collapse the wave function. The superposition principle the superposition principle states that while we do not measure the electron for its position, it is in all the possible positions it could be in at the same time, and when we observe it, the superposition collapses. So in this illustration, when our detector is off, our electron is in all of the possible positions or states it could be in simultaneously. But when we switch our detector on, the superposition collapses and the electron gives up all of its possible states to choose just the one. That is why we were not able to observe the electron's wave function going through the double slits. The very act of attempting to observe made the electron's wave function collapse. The electron gave up its superposition and chose just the one state to be in. I.e. the electrons actually reverted to particle-like behaviour, and that is why instead of going through both of the slits, the electrons that landed on the back detector chose to go through either one or the other of the slits. So what? Okay, so um, as you can see, this is super fascinating stuff. And if you're wondering, I don't think I understood that right, because that sounds crazy. It is as crazy as it sounds. Basically, what is being said is that, uh, to just recap this, is that there's a waveform that is going through these slits. And so you have this interference pattern that represents, uh, you know, the, the particle being in every possible place that it could possibly be. But when um, uh, it's measured by a conscious observer then the waveform collapses into a, a particle in an actual location. And so <clears throat> this is very mysterious. It's like there's something about a measurement being taken by a conscious observer that causes the waveform to collapse. And as, as was said in the video, this has been studied again and again and again, and it seems to be the case. So that's weird enough, 
what in the world is going on with that? And there's been all kinds of uh, theories about how th why this is. One of the theories is that maybe there are many worlds, you know, and, and whenever um, a, a conscious observer measures, whenever you as a conscious observer measures the superposition, the particle collapses to an actual location, but in some other world, a, a, a duplicate of you in some other, you know, actual other universe where everything might be the same otherwise, except for this particular thing, uh, the particle collapsed into a different position. And so you get this like many worlds hypothesis out of this. So that's weird enough as it is. But there's actually another issue that needs to be discussed, and that is quantum entanglement. Now, I promise we're going to get to the debate, but I think this is all very important to understand the debate. So what is quantum entanglement? Now, this will be briefer, I think. Quantum entanglement occurs when two particles become connected in such a way that when the property of one particle is changed, an instantaneous change in the property of the other particle occurs. Entangled particles have the opposite properties or states. Particles have a property called spin, and the particle will either be spin up or spin down in any given direction. When two particles are entangled and their spins measured in the same direction, one particle will be spin up and the other particle will be spin down. According to quantum mechanics, a pair of entangled particles could be separated by an entire universe and when the state of one is measured and its superposition collapsed, it would immediately collapse the superposition of the other particle and measurement would indicate that it had the opposite state of its entangled partner. So in this example, particle A and B are entangled and separated by an entire universe. They are not measured and have the superposition of being both spin up and spin down at the same time. When particle A is measured, its superposition is collapsed and it indicates spin up, and as particle B is entangled with particle A, its superposition is also collapsed and it indicates spin down. Quantum mechanics seems to say that entangled particles can communicate with a speed faster than the speed of light. Some Okay, so this, so what we're saying about this is the fact that it could, they can communicate faster than the speed of light, that when you uh, measure one and it's spin up, for example, the, one, the other one <clears throat> will be spin down, even if it were across an entire universe, which means that, and instantaneously, which means that this happens faster than the speed of light. And this is why they, both of these experiments illustrate why some of these quantum theorists believe that um, space and time are emergent properties from an underlying foundational reality. Um, so what is that underlying foundational reality? Well, now here is where we get to Michael's uh, argument. Uh, and what some physicists believe. And so here, here's what's actually going on. So it, it seems like that, and we'll do this by analogy, and this actually comes up in the debate kind of, so it's, it's helpful, though not enough explanation I don't think was made. Um, in debates, sometimes you want to give the strongest example of your argument, and that means it has to be very technical, and that means that sometimes the people listening aren't going to necessarily understand everything that's being said. But you want to create the best case you can, and then leave it to people to come afterwards, hopefully, and explain it in a, in a simpler way. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to do now for Michael in his case. So basically what's going on here is, by analogy, we can think about the superposition of the particle. Now this is when it's in a wave form, and so it's like in all the spots at once before it's collapsed by um, someone measuring, a conscious observer measuring it. Uh, that's almost like the state of ones and zeros on your computer or your console gaming system. So, you know, computers run on this binary one and zero. And so whenever you run a program uh, and turn on your computer and start running a program, those ones and zeros are, we might say, collapsed into the physical manifestation on the screen. A picture of something on your screen of your phone, like a dog, your dog, or a video, or a video game, or whatever. It's all ones and zeros, but you, the programs are designed to collapse the ones and zeros into a recognizable and understandable um, manifestation of something else so that you can use your computer and do all kinds of cool stuff with it, right? That's what you're looking at right now on your screen. 
And so the ones and zeros by analogy are like the superposition of the waveform. So what the program does to the ones and zeros to collapse it into something that you can see and use is like what the conscious observer does by measuring the waveform is collapses it into a particular state, right? Okay, so now think about a video game, for example. This is the part that kind of came up in the debate, and now you have the background understanding to kind of know what was being said. So if you had a, uh, a let's say, a first-person shooter video game like Halo, but let's imagine that in Halo you're not playing online, okay? This is single-player Halo, okay? So you're the only actual player in the game. Every other villain or, or enemy or whatever is a non-player character. It's just, just part of the game, okay? Now, let's imagine that when you're looking at your screen, we know that the wall, the, uh, the door that's going to slide open, the non-player characters, your gun that's in front of you, all those kind of things are, uh, are ones and zeros that have been collapsed, right, by the program to give you that visual manifestation on the screen. Everything behind your character has not been rendered because your character is looking this way, right, looking forward. But whenever the character rotates, you doing this by turning the joystick, when, it, when, you, when you rotate your character, those ones and zeros that, that were behind are now collapsed into a physical manifestation for you to see on the screen, right? So in other words, by rotating your character and by your character, quote unquote, seeing these things behind him, the ones and zeros are collapsed into the world of the video game. Um, now, Dillahunty's response to this in the debate, uh, we may look at it in a bit, but his response is to say, well, not all video games are that way. But that's to criticize the analogy rather than to, to interact with the point of the analogy. And so what we're saying is, what, what Michael Jones is saying with this argument is that reality is like that. That because of what we're seeing here with the wave function, the waveform, is that when uh, conscious observers measure the external world, when we uh, observe the external world, that what is happening is the ones and zeros, the waveform, is being collapsed such that the external world is uh, available, visible and you can interact with it. And uh, to go a step further, Michael argues that, uh, think about it like um, the only thing you can, the thing that you can, that you have better evidence for, is it the external world or is it your experience of the external world? Well, clearly it's your experience of the external world because that's the means by which you interpret the external world. So you've got this experience of the external world and that's what you can know, uh, that's what you have better evidence to know is real, right? The rest of it <clears throat> may all be ones and zeros. Because uh, in a Kantian sort of way, your way of observing the external world is through your senses, right? Uh, you can, like if you have a coffee cup here, you can see the coffee cup. It's got coffee in it. You can smell what's in the coffee cup. You can touch the coffee cup. You've got these senses, right? But if we had seven or eight senses, perhaps we would experience the coffee cup in some other way that we can't even describe right now, right? In other words, the coffee cup, is this the real coffee cup? Is this the thing in itself, as Kant would say? Well, not really. This is the coffee cup as represented to us by our senses. And uh, that's, that's a really interesting thing. Well, what is the thing in itself? Well, it's hard to say exactly what the thing in itself is. Now, this is where you think, well, philosophers spend all day worrying about things that don't matter. Okay, fair enough. But the fact is, uh, we can only interact with and understand and experience the coffee cup in a certain way. But that is our uh, internal conscious experience of the coffee cup. That's what we know is real. That's what we have better evidence for. The external world, uh, what is it really like? It's hard to say. And so that, for that reason, the external world uh, may be all ones and zeros. It may be the waveform. But then when a conscious observer um, measures it, it collapses into what we experience every day. In other words, your experience, if you were the only observer in the world, 
might be something like the Halo character, where behind you is just the waveform. Like for the Halo character, it's all ones and zeros. Until you rotate to observe it or measure it, and then it collapses into what you experience. Now, what someone would say is, okay, but then that just means that what we're talking about is something like um, <clears throat> a subjective experience. How can two individuals have the same experience and agree that, like if Dr. Pritchett walked in here, there really is a coffee cup in your hand, Braxton, and I can confirm that for you. doesn't seem like that's possible on this explanation. Well, of course it is. Now, let's bring into our Halo game an actual online player, one other online player. All right, so this is a real conscious person in some other place, some other country, but they're playing with me online. We're in the same space. They could walk in and see the coffee cup in the game sitting on a table in the same room as my character, and I could confirm, yeah, there's a coffee cup on the table there in the game, right? We could both confirm that, but we're both in a simulation because this whole thing is ones and zeros. And so the, the, the parallel for this, the analogy for this is perhaps reality is something like a simulation. Now, this is getting really far out really fast, and I don't know exactly where I stand on all this just yet. I'm just explaining it to you. So <clears throat> what about this simulation? This is why you've heard in pop culture and maybe from some popularizers of science saying something like, perhaps we are in a simulation. Perhaps we are in some kind of a virtual reality and someone else has put us here. It's almost like the Matrix or something, right? Okay, um, but the question then becomes two problems. One is raised by Dillahunty in the debate we're talking about is there is there are some people arguing that like you need processing power to run your Xbox or your computer. There would never be, it is prohibitively unlikely that there is a something with enough processing power in whatever other world to run our simulation, a simulation on the scale of the entire universe. Okay, um, there's another problem, is that this other world, if it's anything like the world that we are inhabiting in the simulation, provided that we're in a simulation, then it would need to be a simulation too. And so there would be a, a, a someone running that simulation. And then someone would need to be running that simulation and someone that simulation so that you run into an infinite regress of simulations. Where does it end? Well, where it would end is perhaps the overarching simulate, simulator is not actually a computer or something like a computer, but is instead a mind. And perhaps this is not one of many simulations. Perhaps this is the only one. And the mind, there is a mind in which this reality is being simulated. And a mind would be a good explanation since conscious observers measuring things seems to be pretty important. And since many physicists are arguing that our minds are something like quantum computers. So a mind would make sense of this and would solve the infinite regress and would serve as um, something that would have enough processing power, so to speak, um, sufficiently powerful to run a simulation of the entire universe. And so for that reason, there actually are some physicists who are saying it seems like uh, some kind of a consciousness is the fundamental reality. It's, it's the thing that we have better evidence for, our own consciousness, and an underlying consciousness makes sense of what we experience as the external world. Now, I realize now as I've said all this that it might still be difficult to understand, but hopefully I've expressed it in a way that's a little easier to understand than that. And if you want to go further, again, I recommend that book, um, Quanti The Quantum Enigma from um, Oxford Press. So that's, so that's basically, if, if you, to put it really simply, imagine it like the Halo character with ones and zeros until the Halo character observes, and then the ones and zeros are collapsed into the manifestation of the physical world of the game. This uh, coincides almost perfectly with something in the world of philosophy known as idealism. And there have been 
theists who have uh, been idealists and have said that it's basically the mind of God. That's the underlying consciousness. One of the criticisms of idealism and one of the criticisms that could come of this is, okay, well, but then that means that, like, the things that have happened in history and the things that are happening right now aren't really real. So did Jesus really die on the cross for the sins of the world? I mean, that's the fundamental historical claim of Christianity, without which Christianity uh, would be meaningless, right? Our faith would be in vain. Um, So are you saying that didn't really happen? It was just something like a virtual reality or a video game or a simulation? Well, it, the, the defenders of this position would say, it's not that, it, that that wasn't real. Um, it is real, just not in the sense that you thought it was. When you play Halo, is the wall in front of you or the non-player character real? Well, surely they are, just not in the sense that you thought they were real. And that's how they would defend that position. Now here, I'm not arguing for this position. I'm just explaining it. Because this uh, is basically what Michael Jones' argument, at least the first of his arguments, um, reduces to. And he has it spelled out almost exactly like this in his premises. So he's confronted Matt Dillahunty with this. And the great thing about it as we go now into the debate is that Matt Dillahunty, you know, often argues, as we're going to see, that, uh, you know, these philosophical postulations, we need what the physicists say. What do the physicists say about this? Well, Michael Jones is giving him what some physicists have said about this. And we need to see how he responds to that and if he's prepared to respond to it. And so we're going to take a look at that right now. So let's begin with uh, something that happens now. Look, this is a real long debate. This is like a two hour and 10 minute debate. So it would take us forever to go through all of it. We're going to look at some things that are said and we're going we're gonna to respond as we go. And I think we're going to see an overarching theme that begins to emerge and a couple of pretty shocking revelations um, as we move forward. So let's begin. And so we can, I don't, I don't know why we would you know, go to a bunch of physicists to have them start doing philosophy for us. I mean, that, that seems a bit strange. Here's a bunch of physicists who say that philosophically speaking, it should be this. Um, I, I'd rather, I don't know, I would say I'd rather go to the philosophers. However, uh, that's potentially just as much of a mess as anything. Okay, now the reason I wanted to play you that is to illustrate exactly what I just said. Uh, this doesn't have to do with the overarching theme, except for the fact that it seems like there's a moving of goalposts going on. And we'll see that more in just a few moments. But I want you to see here that what, he's, what, he, what Matt Dillahunty has said is, why are we going to physicists to answer these questions? This seems like a philosophical question, which seems to be the opposite of what we're used to hearing from Dillahunty. Now, I'm not saying Dillahunty has anything against philosophy, but uh, look at what he said in my own debate with him when I was raising what uh, the philosophical analysis of the impossibility of a past infinite universe. What did he say? The difference between me and many uh, apologists who also aren't physicists is that I'm not willing to pretend that I know just because I got stumped by a question and propose something that can be an answer to everything. Why do you need to be a physicist in order to understand the philosophical point that the, the universe can't be past infinite because we would have never arrived at today? Because a philosophical approximation is different from what actually happened at the origin of the universe. All right. In other words, th- what he's giving you here is, in other words, uh, when we're looking at this cosmological question in the Kalam that I was raising, he says, well, we need to go to physicists for this, even though the question about a past infinite universe is at much or, as much or more a philosophical question as is a, a physics question. Uh, but here, when, when, when he's confronted with what the physicists say about this, he's pointing to the philosophers. This is very difficult to deal with. I mean, it's, it's almost like whatever we give him, it's, he's, he's going to point the other way. Now, maybe that's not fair. Maybe I'm missing something. And I think that uh, Dillahunty genuinely tries to, you know, understand what his opponent's saying and represent it honestly. And I want to be respectful to that because I do appreciate that. 
But this seems like a problem to me. I'm not quite sure how to take it. All right, let's uh, let's move forward and um, uh, let's let's see what he says here. We don't. Do we have to have a counter explanation that we then show is more plausible? Because more plausible or more probable doesn't tell us much. What if what if the probability that classical God is is the correct explanation is one percent, and we come up with something that's six percent? <clears throat> We still don't have any good reason to think that we are beyond the, let's say, 50 point whatever percent to get us to something that, yes, this is worth reasonably concluding for now. And the thing that people don't often remember is that science often gets pointed to as the best of, of all these. It is the, the scientific methods are the single most consistently reliable way we have of understanding the universe. But science doesn't make proclamations about truth. It creates probabilistic models based on what we understand. It explains things in terms of other things that we understand. And when we are at the fledgling front of some scientific disciplines that too many uh, are going to appear as almost identical or indistinguishable from magic, um, when we're, you know, I know we didn't get into string theory stuff here, but it, it raises the question of, is this proposition falsifiable? And just by example, uh, without going too much into rebuttal at the outset, the fact... Okay, let's stop right here. What I wanted to get out of that specifically was, he says, <clears throat> okay, you know, what if you had this explanation that was uh, 1% and you had another explanation that was at 6%, how do we get to that 50 point something percent that then you can say we can credibly conclude this uh, for now? Okay, what happens again and again in this debate is that Michael Jones is saying, look, here's the best explanation that I think we've come up with. The evidence seems to point to it. It seems reasonable to conclude it's coming to us from physics. Philosophy makes sense of it. I think this is the best explanation. We can conclude this for now. And Dillahunty says, well, now hold on a second, and we're going to see this. Dillahunty says, well, hold on a second. You can't just say this is the best explanation for now, so we're going to believe it. You've got to hold everything tentatively. You can say, look, this, is the, uh, this, this thing seems to, to you know, make sense. Now, we're only going to hold it tentatively for now until something better comes along. Michael Jones isn't arguing with that. He's saying this is the best explanation we can, that we've got. If you want to show me something else, show me something else. But I'm justified in holding this until such a time as you can show me something better, right? And it's almost like Dillahunty is saying that's what you need to do. And when Michael Jones says that's what I'm doing, then Dillahunty says, but you can't do that. It's very dif difficult, and I think you're going to see that as we move forward. Let's, let's go uh, forward in this to the next thing, and we'll hear this more clearly here, I think. What you were saying, that this is the best explanation, so I'm going to accept it. And my objection here is that accepting what you find to be the best explanation and then putting a burden of proof on someone to show you wrong, which you've done repeatedly from, from your opening statement right up until just a minute ago, from your opening statement where you're like, here's what Matt needs to do. He needs to come up with a more plausible explanation than the one I've offered. That's not the way reason works. Reason isn't just, nobody else has come up with an explanation. Nobody else has come up with a better explanation. So I'm just gonna go with this one. That's not what skepticism is. That's not how reasoning works. That's not critical thinking. The real position is to proportion your confidence but what was, well, let's hear what he says. To the actual evidence for something and to accept something tentatively to the degree that it's supported by evidence. At no point is it, I'm going to believe this until somebody proves me wrong. Now, what he's setting it up as, and this, is, this could be a little bit of debate tactic, which is fine, that sort of thing happens. But what he's setting it up as, as though Michael Jones hasn't presented an argument for a conscious uh, foundation for the universe. Like, like that Jones hasn't given 
evidence for that, argument for that. Like he hasn't done any of that. Instead, what he's saying is, well, you know, uh, Jones has given us this weird hypothesis from a fledgling field that people don't, you know, there's a lot of different theories about it. And he's just saying, well, I like this one, so I'm going to believe it until somebody shoots it down. Um, and that's not how reason works. That's not how skepticism works. Um, and then what he says is, no, no, you got to have one that your belief is proportioned to the evidence um, and, and believe this, uh, uh, you know, tentatively until whatever else. That's all Michael Jones is doing. Michael Jones is saying, no, 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 here's your evidence. My belief is proportioned to my evidence. I think I've got solid evidence to conclude this. And if something overturns that later, yeah, I'm holding this tentatively in that respect. If something overturns this later, I'm open to hearing that. But this seems to be where the evidence is pointing. And then Matt characterizes as, I'm just going to believe this until somebody shoots it down. That's, I think, and I don't think Matt intended to do this. I ho certainly hope not. But it seems an unfair way of uh, characterizing his opponent's uh, position. Well, there's a couple of misconceptions I need to go over here. I'm not saying I'm just positing this just because. This is why I started out with the evidence. I laid down several pieces of evidence. And I never said supernatural because I reject that distinction entirely. I don't even know what supernatural means. Every time someone We're in the same boat. supernatural, natural distinction, it's so arbitrary. Ex I don't know Except what that you're asserting it's non-material, which I would say is supernatural. So then is quantum entanglement supernatural because it doesn't happen in space-time? It violates the speed of light. I, I don't know. Is consciousness supernatural? I don't know. Well, then there you go. If you're just going to say, I don't know, I'm going to say that... And, and I'm, I'm not just saying I don't know. I'm saying I don't know and you don't either, but you seem to be claiming that you do. How do you know I don't know? I don't know that you don't know. Well, what don't I'm say saying that. is that your argument for why you know is flawed. How? Because saying something is the best explanation that we have, we know that the fact that something is the best... Okay, now, hold up. Uh, I want to make a point about this, and then I want to play another clip, but I don't want to get away from what he's doing right here. The, the, the thing is, Michael Jones has just said, you know, here, I'm giving evidence for this, blah, blah, blah. And he's saying, I'm just, I don't know. I don't know how quantum entanglement works. I don't know how, how consciousness, this, I don't know. And he says, okay, well, if you don't know, then that's fine. But, but, but I'm saying I don't know and you don't either is what uh, Dylan Hunty says. And Jones is saying, how do you know I don't know? Well, I don't know you don't know. <laughs> I don't know, you don't know, but I'm, I'm looking at the reasons. Now, this is key. This is, this is a very key moment in this debate that I think would go over a lot of people's heads. He says, how do, you, how do you know I don't know? I'm looking at the things that you're giving me, and I don't think on the basis of those things you should be able to conclude what you're concluding or your right to conclude what you're concluding. He says, okay, what's wrong with them? I'm paraphrasing a bit. What's wrong with them? And he says, well, and then he just loops back into this thing of, you can't just say I'm going to believe this until such time as somebody shoots it down. What was supposed to happen at that point is Matt Dillahunty was supposed to actually interact with the evidence and show what was wrong with Jones' argument. What was wrong with the reasoning behind Jones' argument? Instead, he circumvents the argument and just says, that's all well and good, but you can't just say I'm going to believe this until someone shoots it down. Which, again, he runs into the brick wall because, characterizing Jones' argument rightly, Jones is saying, I have good evidence for this, and I'm holding this. I'm willing to consider other evidence if it comes down the pipe, which is exactly what Dylan Hunty said a person should be able to do. So this goes wrong a couple of different ways, but one thing I think needs to be pointed out is that was the moment where Dylan Hunty was being asked to and should have given some interaction with that argument specifically and shown what was wrong with that argument. Again, later he's going to say, well, you say your argument gets you to a mind, and I don't necessarily grant that, but even if I did. Now, hold on a second. If you're going to say it doesn't get you to a mind, if you're going to say it doesn't get you to a fundamental consciousness, then you need to explain to us why, what's wrong with the argument. 
what's wrong with it as such. And if you're just going to say, I don't know, I understand that if you genuinely, genuinely don't know something, that's fine to say, I don't know. But if you're going to present yourself as someone who's able to debate an issue like whether God exists, and you're asking all the time for physics answers and scientific answers, um, things that can be repeated uh, in experiments and things like that, when somebody gives it to you, then interact with that. And if all you're going to say is, I don't know, then it begs the question, what are we doing here? What, what is the point of this? Because it seems like a way to, it seems, I mean, it just seems like a way of trying to get out of the force of the argument. It's like when it comes to a conclusion, it's what William Lane Craig says about the Kalam. He says, look, um, this is not a bus that you can just get off of whenever you want. You've got to follow this thing all the way to its conclusion, whether you like it or not. And with these arguments, you've got to interact with the arguments. And if they indicate something that you don't like or doesn't fit with your worldview, you've got to take it all the way there. You can't just go as far as it you know, works with your worldview and then say, uh, I don't like where it's going now. So you know what? I don't know about that. I don't know. And I don't think that Dillahunty would say that's what he's doing. I'm cer- certain that he wouldn't. But the fact is, it certainly appears that way. Perhaps it's happening, and he's not even aware of it. And I don't mean for that to sound condescending, but that that kind of thing happens to all of us. But I think that's a very important thing. Another thing happens here where, uh, at this point, we've got to wonder, you've been given philosophical argumentation from multiple people. You've been presented now with evidence from physics. Okay, so what does Matt mean when he says that we need a demonstration? What's he looking for? Is it scientific evidence, philosophical evidence? Let's hear what he. Let's hear this question posed. So I, I have a question. What, what do you mean? You said you know, it's demonstrable. There's you know, we need to demonstrate. You, I, Braxton Hunter, brought this up with you in his debate. Hey. As well, what do what does this mean? How do we demonstrate something in your view, or what do you mean by that? So. It's, it's a good question because a lot of times when we're talking about these things, we'll use a word and everybody just assumes they know what it means uh, and maybe we're not even talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, something that's demonstrable is something that we can, I mean, everything that we get, we get through our senses and exploration. So can we set aside the problem of hard solipsism and just agree that we're sharing a universe? Fair enough. Sweet. As long as we're sharing a universe, then I have a way to demonstrate to myself and to others independently and get their confirmation of what is or isn't in this can or that there is a can. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean that the explanation itself needs to be materialistic, but because we are physical beings in a material world, that demonstration needs to be physical. And I'm not saying there could be a supernatural being, for example, that can interact, that can do miracles, that can do mind reading, that can do that kind of stuff. But there would be a manifestation in reality that is detectable, identifiable, discoverable. And that means that some things are going to need to be repeatable, like a, a single occurrence can al- is almost always going to be incredibly uh, difficult for anybody to reasonably accept unless it... It, 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 it is in a category of something that is mundane. Like, I dropped my pen. Oops, now it's in the past. How do we explore the past? How do we investigate the past? Oh, somebody could have recorded this and it's, a, it's an edited thing. Apart from, uh, you know, the actual instant of doing it, how would I go about demonstrating it? Well, maybe we can go to the recording. Maybe we can go to the fact that it's live. Maybe we can see that the pen is on the floor. Maybe then we can make an, you know, an abductive or an inference about what the best explanation is. At the end of the day, though, the claim that I knocked a pen on the floor, not a big deal. You talked about the past. Now, you and I both accept the theory. Of- okay, so he said a couple of things there that I heard. One, it needs to be um, repeatable. 
we need to be able to uh, repeat this in, in other experiments um, and because it's easy to interpret wrongly things that only happen once. And second, it needs to manifest in some way that is physically detectable. Um, it doesn't have, the explanation doesn't have to be physical, but since we're physical beings, it has to manifest in some way that's physically detectable. Okay, great. I don't think those are necessarily, uh, I don't think those are necessary, but let's just go with it for a minute. What has Michael Jones given him? He's given him something from the field of quantum physics that is repeated in, uh, now the explanation is not physical, but the, it's been reproduced over and over again and is detectable physically in the physical universe. What more do you want? But there's a deeper problem here, and the reason I think that Michael Jones, and I've talked to him about this, the reason I think that he brings up uh, the thing from, the, uh, from my debate with, with Matt is that the first thing, one of the first things that I ask Matt is, what do you mean by demonstration? Because you're often saying that something shouldn't be believed until it's been properly demonstrated. Um, okay, what do you mean by that? What, what, are, what, what are you looking for? What does that mean? And here's why I think this is very important. And I, I'm not saying, again, I don't want to say anywhere in here that I think that Matt is somehow trying to do something tricky or trying to be slippy or anything like slippery or anything like that. But what I am saying is Matt does not believe in Cartesian certainty. He doesn't even believe he can have Cartesian certainty about his own existence. And I, that's the reason these two questions went together in my debate with him, because I was prepared to, to go further with this. If you're saying we can't be certain about anything, including our own existence, that's fine. There's a lot of people that hold that. But if you can't be certain about anything, including your own existence, and you're asking me for a demonstration, then that means that anything that happens, any, any demonstration I give you, it, it will never achieve that level of certainty that you're looking for because your epistemology doesn't allow for 100% Cartesian certainty. Now, I'm sure that Matt would say, I don't require it to. But here's the problem, is that this allows for, this is a breeding ground for bias that you may not even notice. Because if you say, I want a demonstration that will convince me, and I don't believe anything can be known with Cartesian certainty, then what that allows for is for whatever the apologist gives you, no matter how strong the argument it is, no matter what field it comes from, whether it's scientific or philosophical or historical, whatever it is, since it's not, doesn't reach the level and cannot on your epistemology reach the level of Cartesian certainty, then what it results in is you always, your bias is easy, is, is very capable of directing you away from uh, a conclusion that is not naturalistic. If you've got a bias against it. And the absolute best evidence of this, I think, is not only this debate, because here he is given things that meet those criteria of being detectable, um, you know, in the physical world. We can see this stuff. It, he says it itself doesn't have to be physical, but it needs to manifest in some way physically. We've got that here, and it's repeatable, but uh, that's, that's not good enough. Why? Well, because it doesn't convince me. Well, why doesn't it convince you? Well, we know why it doesn't convince you, because nothing can be known with Cartesian certainty. And if you have those two things in play, that is a breeding ground for bias, and you can have a skepticism that cannot be satisfied. Um, it happened in our debate. I brought out, uh, and I, I keep coming back to this every time I discuss it, because it is so powerful to make this point. I said, um, listen, uh, what if the ocean, what if someone parted the ocean in Jesus' name? That's what Matt Slick put to him in one of their discussions. Uh, and he said he wouldn't conclude that something supernatural had happened. Not even that something supernatural had happened. Um, <clears throat> well, what, what about um, 
what if uh, an asteroid collided with the moon and suddenly it said God exists in two languages? Uh, not enough to conclude that something supernatural had happened. Okay, if that's where we are, if that's where we're at, then you can see how what I'm talking about has, has really manifested itself. Because you said it has to be, here's what demonstrated means, is that in some way it, it has to be demonstrated. Um, and I don't believe in Cartesian certainty. So no matter how good of a demonstration I give you, there's still going to be room for your bias to wiggle you out of situations. And if it doesn't look like it's going that way, I can always just say, I don't know. And that gets me out of it. That, that is a major, major problem, I think, that, that comes up in these discussions. And um, when I asked him about a demonstration, I said, well, then nothing on your epistemology would allow for you to come to such a conclusion. And he said, sure, uh, Jesus could appear on this stage right here in front of us right now. And I said, yeah, but wouldn't you then just conclude that that was some sort of a mental phenomenon that, uh, you know, an apparition or something like that? And he said, well, uh, yeah, I mean, that'd be the first thing I would conclude. Uh, okay, well, then this is to demonstrate exactly what I'm, what I'm saying is a problem here. No matter what kind of, we've seen it now with philosophy and history and, and science, and, and uh, no matter, if we give him exactly what he's asking for in terms of a demonstration, he still wiggles out of it. And in this case, the way he wiggles out of it, as previously stated, is not to interact with uh, Michael's arguments and show what's wrong with it and why it doesn't get to a foundational mind, but rather the way to get out of it is to simply say, well, you can't just hold that until something better comes along. When in fact, that's exactly what, you know, he said we apportion our beliefs to the evidence and hold that tentatively until some other explanation. Interesting. And here we'll hear it again. Best explanation we have doesn't mean it has any, con there's any likelihood that it's actually true or that it is the, the best explanation we will ever have. It's possible, yeah. Wait, um, so it's like saying. Now, notice, notice, notice Michael saying, yeah. That's fine. Something else may come along that explains it better. I'm fine. That's fine. I've said I'm, I'm open to looking into that. Saying, hey, the butler did it is the best explanation I have. Well, first of all, I don't like comparing things to sort of murder investigations for the very simple reason that in a court of law, you have to uh, believe beyond all reason. Yeah, so I, I just wanted you to hear that. It's happening again. Let, let's move on now. You literally said, God, you are merely defining as that which is sufficient as an explanation for whichever those arguments. God is just a title. I've given evidence there is a mind behind the universe. And I said, well, this fits the description. I can call it God. If you don't like that title, I don't care. That's your, that's your prerogative. Okay. So again, and again. Now, uh, something great is coming up in a moment. But I want to say first here that uh, I've heard at least one person complain that several times in this debate, when Dillahunty indicated that whatever Michael was saying was not convincing to him, he basically I don't care. And they said, well, isn't he a Christian? Doesn't he want Matt to come to Christ? Why doesn't he care? Well, the reason he's saying I don't care is to get around this problem. Here is what happens in Matt's debates, and I was prepared for this. That's why I brought up the issue of demonstration. Is the, and I'm not saying that Matt intends to do this, but here's what it often looks like to the observer on the outside. Is It looks like <clears throat> that what's happening is the debate has been set up, and, in, and, and the way Matt is uh, arranging the furniture is you can, you're going to give me a bunch of evidence. And winning this debate is synonymous with convincing me that you're right about whatever you're saying. That's what winning this debate looks like. So that the way Matt can ensure that debate is not won is to say some things that are smart and then say, I don't, I'm, I'm not yet convinced of that. I'm not convinced. Well, who cares if you're convinced? 
I mean, we want him to be convinced, no question. But in terms of the evidence, who cares if you're convinced? The, the, the facts don't care about your feelings or, your, or whether you're convinced. It, this is why later uh, he brings up something about evolution. He says, if somebody uh, disagree with you about evolution, so well, that didn't convince me. Does that mean that evolution isn't true? Uh, you know, because Michael Jones affirms evolution. He's a theistic evolutionist. Does that mean evolution isn't true? Well, no, of course not. It doesn't matter what you think about it. So he wasn't trying to say, I don't care about you, Matt. He's trying to say in terms of where this evidence points, it's irrelevant whether you're convinced by it. It points where it points. Going back to what the thing is, it says you don't know what we would call God. This seems like, or we don't have any evidence for God. This seems like circular reasoning. If I give evidence, you're like, well, that can't be demonstrated. Therefore, there's no evidence for God. It just seems like we're going in a constant circle here. No matter what I present, it could never be evidence for God because you just assert constantly, as I've seen on your show, God can't be, done, can't, can't be demonstrated. And I don't even know what that means. So you first thing to do is to define God and state what characteristics and then provide the evidence for it. And if all you're going to do is say God is the title that I give to the thing that explains the universe, okay, I'm completely disinterested. I don't care if you're disinterested. I, I know. But here's the thing. That God is as useless as not knowing the answer. It has no impact on anything that we believe, nothing we do. It cannot get you to a particular God or how you must live your life or anything like that. It is just saying, it is a tautology. The universe has an explanation. I'm going to call that explanation God. I don't really care about uselessness. This is the same argument. Now, is that true or fair? No, that's not true or fair. He's not saying it's a tautology. The universe must have some explanation, so I'm going to label that explanation God. That's not at all what he's saying. He's given arguments that, that uh, he's arguing point to an underlying fundamental reality of consciousness. In other words, a conscious foundation for the universe. We might say a conscious creator of the universe. Now, if conscious creator of the universe, if you don't hear that and think theism is true, then that's a bizarre definition of theism. And that's what he's given evidence for. That's what he's argued for. The evidence based on, uh, you know, these superposition, double slit experiments and quantum entanglement and the holographic principle and other things that have been demonstrated through physics. And he's not just saying the tautology, uh, there has to be an explanation for the universe and we're going to call that God. Therefore, God exists because God is the explanation for the universe. The universe has to have an explanation. That's how Matt is characterizing it, but that is not fair argument that uh, university directors use against people studying quantum mechanics is they were like, how useful is this going to be for us in the future? I'm not, I'm not arguing from utility of, I'm saying, I'm saying that it's a tautology to <laughs> label God as that which is responsible for the universe and then to argue that the universe needs something to be responsible for it in order to do that makes it a tautology. That's you have not. provided nothing new. There's nothing explanatory. You have simply said the universe needs an explanation. Consciousness needs an explanation. God is the label for that which explains. Once again, I did not ever utter those phrases. I said, given the evidence, this is the most probable explanation. If there was evidence that the universe just existed eternally, I wouldn't have to do that. What properties does God have? What properties has got? I listed it in the beginning. Thing, do you want to put the slide back up? All I okay. So let's, uh, I think, skip ahead. Let's see. Yeah, just a minute or so in the conversation. This gets us to where the Kalam goes wrong. Everything that begins to exist has an explanation for its existence. The universe, or as a cause for its existence, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause for its existence. That is the full and total Kalam cosmological argument. At no point in there does it say what the cause is at all. It is only people saying, we're going to call that cause God. God is not even... Okay, now, first of all, I'm not going to rehash this because I have other videos. I have a video called, um, I think it's called uh, The Kalam Doesn't Mention God or something like that. Um, I always say, and I said in my debate with him, 
uh, I'm going to give you a case that begins with the Kalam. Because he's right, the core syllogism of the Kalam doesn't mention God. But always, every time, like ever, that the Kalam is brought by a Christian theist, there is a conceptual analysis that follows the Kalam that does get you to God, not just a labeling of the cause as God, but further argumentation that gets you to a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise, personal agent as the cause of the physical universe. So that's not fair. Secondly, um, he, ta- he starts talking about the Kalam. It, it, no, I'd be judging motives if I said why I think he brought up the Kalam. Let's just keep going. Any premise within the Kalam cosmological argument. God is not a premise, as far as I can tell, in any of your arguments. It is these are the, the universe requires a mind, this requires a mind, this, was, uh, this, this, this reduces down to where it requires a mind, which is something that I, I don't necessarily accept we've gotten to. But even if it does, now all of a sudden... Okay, now you hear that there? That was a part of the argument, that it gets you to a mind, a consciousness. And he says, well, I don't accept it, but even if I do... Hold on a second. If you're going to challenge this argument, if you've asked for evidence repeatedly, a demonstration that is repeatable and based on stuff that can be observed in the physical universe... And we've given it to you from physics, no less, and philosophy. You know, I would expect that we'd get someone, you know, Dylan Hunty would be excited to deal with this. Um, You need to explain why you don't think it gets you to a mind. That would resolve this whole thing. All of a sudden, God is that mind. Okay, so you're just... Okay, now I want you to hear what has just been said. He says, even if I grant you that, that all of this reduces to a mind... That is responsible for the universe. You're just calling that God. Yeah. Yes. And this is where uh, Michael Jones says, okay, you're just... You're just upset with the title then? Yes, because here's the thing. I live in a world where the overwhelming majority of people currently and throughout history have believed in a variety of different gods. Okay, now this is important what he's getting to now, but I want you to hear what has just been said. Now, granted, he said a moment ago that he's not convinced, though he doesn't tell us why, that Jones' argument doesn't get you to, or he's not convinced that Jones' argument gets you to a consciousness responsible for the universe. But he says, even if I grant you that, you're just calling that mind that's responsible for the universe God. Jones says, so you're just complaining about the title? And he says, yes. Now, that is as close to a granting a concession of classical theism, as I think I've ever heard from Matt Dillahunty. He's just, it's like as he's saying, a conscious mind that's responsible for the universe is fine, but don't call it God. Now, hold on a second, hold on a second. Uh, Why, Matt? And they use the label, and it carries with it some baggage. And whenever we want to have a discussion or debate about whether or not this is a reasonable thing to accept... They toss out all the baggage and then just make God this, you know, the God of classical theism or the, the nondescript, that God is the first cause. And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything else about his properties. I'm not saying whether or not he is, you know, has any desires for people or cares who you sleep with or whatever else. It's just this. And right. And, and in fact, a couple of things about that. First of all, that's why I insisted that my debate with Matt, because I knew he had that complaint that it's always just this argument for some god of the philosophers that you know has these minimal traits. That's why I insisted that we debate, does the Christian God exist? Because I, I wanted to go further than that. Um, nevertheless, let's take up for Jones here for a second, and anyone else who's ever argued for mere theism as a starting point 
in the discussion. The, the important thing is, why are we not talking about praying to this God and cares who you sleep with and all these other kind of things? Because we are proportioning our claims to the evidence. And the argument that Jones has given doesn't get you all those things. The argument of the Kalam, the case that begins with the Kalam, doesn't get you all those other things. You need further argumentation for that. But that doesn't mean you throw out what these arguments do get you. And in Jones's case, gets you to a conscious mind as the foundation for reality. And so, in a sense, it is, in, in every circumstance, it is, here's a mystery. It needs to have some explanation. I'm going to call that God, and I'm going to tell you nothing else about God other than that is the label I'm putting on the explanation, which tells us nothing. There's no edification there. It is not anything that you could even build a religion off of. It is not, the, it's not consistent with what the overwhelming majority of people, if I go out and poll people of all religions, not just Christianity, what do you, what, what's God? Are they going to come up with God is the mind that is responsible for the fact that there's a mind? Well, first of all, three things. Pill to consequence, I don't really care. Uh, second thing, I don't really care what people in the streets are going to say. That's kind of an ad populum fallacy. And once again, this is step one. I never said I'm just going to stop here. I think there are better reasons to keep moving forward. But if we can't get past this... Now, what I think he means there is, I'm not saying we stop with just mere theism that there's a mind that is responsible for the universe. Um, I would go further from there. And I'm sure he means something like a resurrection argument. He's going to, I think, debate Delahunty on that subject uh, if in the future. So he doesn't think you stop there. But that doesn't mean that you, this is the first step. This is, a th you know, classical apologetics, and I don't know if, I'm, I mean, I guess he would have to. He qualifies, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Jones would, would be a classical apologist. He begins with an argument for God's existence and then moves forward with a case for, for Jesus' divinity or the resurrection of Jesus. That's what he's doing. It doesn't mean that it's like you're saying, if the, if the first step in your argument doesn't get you the whole ball of wax, then it's useless. Okay, that's fine that that's your opinion, but the first step of my argument gets you to theism. Now, you're saying that a mind that's responsible for the universe, you don't want to call it God, and this is where we say, don't care what you want to call it, Call it whatever you want, and we'll get there in a moment. This step, I mean, what's the point of going forward? And if you're just upset about the title, I mean, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's just a title. Now, once again, I agree with you. We don't get very far with this in terms of how it affects our lives. But again, quantum mechanics, when it was first discovered, didn't really affect people. They had research problems because they're like, how is this really going to help us in the future? Well, it turns out it's actually used in cell phones and all sorts of other technologies that actually came about. Once again, if we care about truth and, and what is actually true about reality, then we look for those things and we don't go, well, how is this going to affect us? The problem here, and, and you can dismiss it as Matt's just upset about the title, yes, I am, and here's why. Because I would agree with you, conscious needs an explanation. What's the justification for calling it God? The universe needs an explanation. What's the justification for calling it God? When we call it God, we are smuggling in all of the baggage in the world that has ever been attributed to God and then denying that any of this is the case. Could you define God for me how you would define it then? So here's the thing. I know of many different definitions of God and the overwhelming majority of them I am not convinced are real. And so when I interact with people, it's not up to me to define God and say, you didn't prove the God that I want you to prove. It's up for them to say, hey, here's how I'm defining God. Let me make a demonstration that that's there. And if you start by defining God as that which is responsible to serve, or that which serves as a foundation for the universe, and there's nothing else there, including no demonstration that this is a thinking agent or that the, the interacts with... And now, wait a minute. He, he did give a demonstration 
that this was a consciousness with reality or has done anything or what this is I, i'm not saying that matt's doing this intentionally maybe he doesn't remember that part of the argument but this sounds a little bit like trying to control the debate away from what happened and reformulate it in the way that we would like for it to have happened never else then what you've done is just saying god is that which is responsible for the universe and all you've done is label it i i, I could agree all day long that there's an explanation for the universe if the question is, why then call it God? And if what we're going to do is toss out all the other baggage and say, look, I've proved God by saying I'm going to label this the thing that's the explanation for the universe, what have we actually accomplished? For me, dealing with actual real people, not, not that you're not a real person, I don't want to make that. I'm not. I'm, you're <laughs> dreaming right now. I, I can't prove I'm not. Actually, I kind of can, but I can't. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's contextual. If, if, if all of that had ever happened was somebody said, hey, there needs to be some explanation for the universe or consciousness, and we're going to call it God, I'd be like, okay. Because it's just a word. You can call something whatever you want it. And, I'm, and I don't want to fault you for the failings of countless past apologists uh, by defending uh, a notion that doesn't get to anything. I'm just saying that even if I agree with you on everything, and I have no expertise in quantum mechanics, and I have friends who do, and I've had conversations with them, and there's things I understand and things I don't understand. Uh, overwhelmingly, the ones, at least among my friends, and this is a clearly unfairly biased sample, but they don't agree with the conclusion that you're reaching, and they don't necessarily agree, and, and none of them would say, hey, it's a good idea for us to conclude that the universe must have an explanation and then to call it God. It's not that, so words are our playthings. We get to do whatever we want with them. But you also have to be cognizant of the baggage that's out there. And if the overwhelming majority of people throughout history have had a notion of a God as not just the philosophical, or the label that we put on a, the conclusion of a philosophical argument that the universe must have an explanation, but as the intentional agent supremely powerful, moral, etc., creator of the universe, governor of our lives, and who has some vested interest in us and what we do and everything else. And I don't know. I don't know what your, excuse me, I don't know what your theological position is. I don't know. Okay, <clears throat> there's a couple of things that happened there. Um, I'm not sure where in the debate it comes up, but he, but he says somewhere something like, well, then if we just stopped with your explanation and said, that's the explanation, that there's this God, this mind that serves as the fundamental reality, uh, then then we'd never be able to move forward. We w that would be the end or whatever of science. I'm not sure if that's exactly how he put it. Uh, no, no. That this is this is the best explanation we have right now. And if you guys come up with something better, let us know. We'll evaluate it. There's no problem there. Secondly, this is where it moves to, and and I think this counts as a little bit of a concession in the moment. Maybe not. Maybe no, no, no. That's not fair. I'll, I'll say this. It's interesting. When he starts, Dylan Hunt, he starts trading on the currency of friends who are physicists and Sean Carroll, who's a physicist. He says, well, I've got friends and they don't agree with you who are physicists. They don't agree with you. And later he says, Sean Carroll, you know, he, he's a physicist. He doesn't agree with you about, and he understands all this. And that's fine. Uh, but when, when that's where the debate goes, it's not looking good. It's not looking good. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's see where we are now. Uh, there's one more thing I think I wanted to get to. Let's get to it now. And while I know that your 
what you were attempting to do was to show that it is more probable that there is a mind behind it. Uh, I have various reasons that I, I don't accept that we reached that. But by saying it's a, a mind, we're narrowing the options. Because what Here if we find out that it's not a mind? So now we're just at, there must be an explanation for consciousness, and we can call it something. We should invent a completely new word, blargadoob. Blargadoob is the explanation for consciousness. And now if it turns out that in fact there is a mind behind it, whether or not that mind qualifies as a god, cool. If it turns out there is a god behind it, cool. Blargadoob is now co-equal to god. But by injecting that baggage into the label for the unknown, we are narrowing the options of what we can do, of what we can explore. So I, I completely see where you're coming from. I'm not going to agree. Because at the end of the day, I don't care about baggage. I'm going to say the theory of evolution. Yeah, this is what he's saying here. I love Jones on this because he's like, I, it doesn't matter. Look, you're complaining that if I conclude that this is a consciousness that serves as the fundamental nature of reality, a consciousness, a mind that is responsible for the existence of the universe, if your comeback to that is, that's all well and good, I don't know that we've gotten to a mind, but that would all be fine, even if I give you the mind. But you're bringing in all this baggage from Christianity and Islam and Hinduism, and it cares about how, who we sleep with and all these other kind of things. And I don't like that. That's, that's terrible. We can't, we can't have that. Who cares? And Dillahunty goes into the Pixie Parade, if you're not familiar. I call this the Pixie Parade because I, I've pointed out, Dillahunty has said, okay, what if I give you a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, exceedingly wise something that caused the universe, even a personal agent, how do we know it's not a pixie, a, a universe-creating pixie? Okay, what you've done there is just to describe God and label God a pixie. And in our debate, I even said to him, welcome to theism, you pixie theist. Right? Because that's just to describe theism. I've heard other people say a grilled cheese sandwich. I've heard other people say a computer. There's all kinds of, uh, of things that have been posited as having all the attributes of God, but we label it something else to escape. I mean, think about what that means. To escape the forces of these theistic arguments, you have to basically grant them and say, we're just not going to call it God. We're, gonna, we're just going to we're just gonna grit our teeth. We're not going to call it God. I mean, fine. All that's fine, but we're not calling it God. That sounds like theism already won, frankly. And here we add to the pixie parade, the parade of things like a pixie that have been labeled God. You've got the pixie, the grilled cheese sandwich, the pizza, the uh, you know computer, whatever. And now we come to Blargadoop. Add Blargadoop. Whoever it is that keeps the list for us, I think it's Drew McLeod. Add that to the list. Add it to the list. The, 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 this is the universe creating personal agent uh, that is sufficiently powerful, Blargadoop. That is the creator of the universe. Okay, then you're a theist. You're a Blargadoopian theist, Matt. That's theism. It would be a really weird form of atheism. Just like in the last video we said this in responding to Matt um, McCormick. It would be a really weird form of atheism to grant that there is a personal agent sufficiently powerful to create the universe but we just don't want to call that God. That is a weird form of atheism. One, as William Lane Craig says, not deserving of the title. So um, we come to the end of this debate, and there's a, couple, there's a few things that I want to point out here. First of all, Matt says, you need to give me repeatable evidence. The answer doesn't have to be physical, but it needs to be, there needs to be some physical demonstration of what you're saying, and it needs to be repeatable. Uh, Jones gave him that in these, in, from quantum physics. <clears throat> he says... Um, well, I don't like it because you can't just say I'm going to believe this 
um, until such time as you give me something else. But then later Matt says, well, I mean, here's the thing. We, we proportion our beliefs to the evidence, and we hold that tentatively until something else comes along. That's all Jones is doing. He's saying, here's where the evidence goes. I'm proportioning my beliefs to the evidence. In fact, Dillahunty later complains that he's proportioning his beliefs to the evidence. He's like, this doesn't get you. Along with this comes, if you didn't prove Christianity all the way full tilt, then this is useless. This is, this is a God that I don't care about. This is a, you know, an explanation I don't care about. Well, it doesn't matter. We're proportioning our beliefs to the evidence, and the argument gives you a conscious mind is the foundation of the universe. So what you were complaining about, what you were asking for is what I'm giving you, and now that I'm giving it to you, you're complaining about it, that, that this is what it is. Um, yeah, I, I just there's a lot here that I, I'm glad that the, the problem with a demonstration, what does that look like? You've told us what it looks like here, and we gave it to you. Um, you can always wiggle out of it with I don't know. You can always wiggle out of it with it doesn't give me Cartesian certainty. He would never say that, but that's that that combination of you need to give me a demonstration that convinces me, and I don't believe in Cartesian certainty leaves a huge field that is a breeding ground for bias to direct your conclusions. So I hope that this has been helpful. I enjoyed the debate, thought it was great, and I hope that this video will help some people who maybe didn't understand it, some of the stuff that was going on because of a lack of understanding about quantum mechanics, will now be able to see the strength of what really happened here. So uh, this has been fun. I really like both of these guys. I like Matt Dillahunty. Uh, I wish that we were able to talk more after our debate because I enjoyed him as a person, and I think he's a really sharp guy and an inspired debater. Um, but uh, I think that his epistemology gets him into some major problems. So um, this has been fun, and I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.